open your Bibles, I want to introduce you to someone. Uh, when I think about some of the first Baptist missionaries, uh, I think of, and maybe you think of names also like William Carey, who sailed for India from England in 1793, or Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma from America in 1812, and uh, those are the ones who we normally attribute as some of the first Baptist missionaries. However, it was a black man named George Lyle who was, in fact, America's first missionary. And he chose to leave America in 1782 to start a church in Kingston, Jamaica, 10 years before William Carey left England and 30 years before Adoniram Judson left for Burma. George Lyle was born in 1750, pre-Revolutionary War, uh, in Virginia, born into slavery to slave parents, and eventually moved with his owner to Savannah, Georgia. And his owner took him to church regularly, and it was through that that George gave his life to Jesus Christ as a young man. After being baptized, George taught himself how to read the Bible and discovered a love for God's Word and a huge compassion for other slaves. His owner and his church were convinced of God's call in his life, and so they licensed him to preach. And then his owner freed him from slavery so that he could pursue the work that God had called him to do. So George went to South Carolina, where he essentially became a missionary to slaves. Uh, from his converts, he started a very small church, and they became part of a core group of believers who, just a few years later, moved from South Carolina back to British-occupied Savannah, Georgia, and there they formally established the first black church in America, a church known as First African Baptist Church. It's a church that still exists and worships today. In 1778, uh, George was threatened with re-enslavement. And in order to escape, to pay for his way for himself, his wife, and his four kids to escape to Jamaica, uh, he sold himself as an indentured servant. Uh, they got to Kingston, Jamaica, and for two years he worked to pay off his debt. Uh, all during that time, he continued to preach. He never got away from his uh, love for the Word of God and his love for slaves. And so he preached the gospel to slaves. And uh, through his ministry, he started the first church of, for, uh, for slaves in uh, Jamaica. And uh, the church flourished under his care and the hand of God. By 1791, the new church, which was made up mostly of black slaves as well as black free men, grew to over 350 members. Uh, the church also started a school uh, paid for a teaching staff to educate slave and free children alike. George was imprisoned multiple times by white slave owners uh, and was threatened many more times by them, but he never stopped preaching. His ministry was directly responsible for creating an abolitionist movement in Jamaica. It was an abolitionist movement that was influential even in England. Uh, his ministry, um, uh, excuse me, by 1814, it was reported that there were eight thousand Baptists in Jamaica, the majority of whom were slaves. And the last day of slavery for the British Empire was July 31st, 1838. George didn't live to see that day. He died 10 years prior. But his influence continued to be felt and to empower freedom. So George Lyle was born a slave. 
saved and ordained in a white church in Georgia. He was a missionary to slaves, founding pastor of the first black congregation in America, and the first Baptist missionary of any ethnicity from America, a man whose ministry changed Jamaica and Britain and impacted the world. I only just learned of George Lyle just a few years ago. My catalog of missionary knowledge is missing the entire and incredible contributions of black Christians. And so each Sunday this month, as part of Black History Month, I'm going to introduce you to a notable black Christian whose names should be just as well known as William Carey or Adoniram Judson. And that's George Lyle. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. How do, you, how do you know when a human heart is dysfunctional? I don't mean dysfunctional in a medical sense that an EKG or a cardiologist can fix. I mean heart as the core of our being, the epicenter of our passions and emotions, the source of our love. How can we know when that heart is dysfunctional? The Apostle John says... The evidence is in the things that you love. God made us and saved us to love him supremely, but it happens sometimes that God's people stop loving God and start loving the world. And that sort of love, a love for the world, is a love that is twisted and temporal. It's a love that demands to be fed, but it is never satisfied And I wonder if maybe you know what I'm talking about, if you've seen this kind of love in action, so to speak, where the people of God have turned their hearts over to the world. Have you seen that? What does that do to a person? What does it do to the people around them? What does it do to a church when the church stops loving the Lord and instead loves the world? It's it's devastating. So last week, we studied a poem by John, verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2. And in that poem, you remember, he gave us these incredible words of affection and assurance. But in our passage today, John gives us a warning about misplaced love. Now, it may seem like an odd pairing. How do we go from affection to warning? Those two don't necessarily go hand in hand. That's not the stuff of greeting cards. I love you. Watch out! That's not how we do that. But John does it here. Gives us affection in the poem, assurance in the poem, and then he gives us a word of warning. Why? Because although God's people are loved and victorious in Christ, we are not yet done with temptation. You remember the final line of John's poem? It's easy to see. It's right there in verse 14. He says, you have conquered the evil one. So since we are forgiven, since we know God, since we are victorious in Christ, we must continue to be vigilant about who or what we love. And when our love strays from our Savior, we have to have a spiritual reset. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to help you with both a diagnosis and a cure. The diagnosis might be this, your love has gone astray. Your cure is this. It's a new heart given by Christ, a heart whose love for God is unrivaled. So John helps us diagnose ourselves by giving us three traits of a healthy love for God. Follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. 
John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So John gives us in this very brief passage three traits of a healthy love for God. How do I know if my love is right? What does it look like? The first characteristic is this. Our love for God is an exclusive love. I know my love for God is healthy. It's right. It's what it should be when my love is set exclusively on the God of my salvation. So a valuable tool when you're studying your Bible is this thought, you might say this, okay, I want to look in this passage for commands. And whenever we see a command, that's something that's going to grip our attention. What's it telling us to do or not to do? What's it connected to? And there's a command here in verse 15. In fact, it's the first command altogether in the book of 1 John, and it's the first of 10 such commands in this book. And the command is this, do not love the world or the things in the world. So we've got to do some language work here real quick. What does John mean by the world? Do not love the world. Well, this can seem a bit confusing because in other places in John's writings and throughout the Bible, the world is spoken of in positive terms. John 3.16 tells us that God loved the world. And just a little earlier in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that Jesus died to take away the sins of the whole world. So should we love the world or shouldn't we? Well, it's clear that here in verse 15, John is using the word world in a different way. In fact, in a negative way. You see, when the world is viewed as people, then we are in fact to love the world. We love people. But when the world is viewed as a system of sin and decay under the dominion of Satan... We don't love that. That's not where our affection or our hearts go. What about the word love? The word love is a powerful word in Christian theology. And Christians are supposed to be the kinds of people who do love, who love much. So why now would we withhold love? Well, again, the word love is used in a different way here in verse 15. You see, when we love as God loves... Well, then we strive to see people freed from their sin. But when we love the world, we are striving to share in their sin. There's a big difference. So according to chapter 2, verse 5, the Christian is to love God. According to chapter 2, verse 10, you are to love your brother or sister. But here in verse 15, you're not to love the world. Now, here's where you get to push back a bit. And you can say, well, isn't that narrow-minded? And doesn't that make God an egomaniac? Let me ask a question of you then. Is it narrow-minded to expect a husband to have exclusive love for his wife? Well, no, that's not narrow-minded at all. Another question for you. uh, Does a husband's desire that his wife would love only him as her husband make him an egomaniac? No, no. It doesn't. That's not true in marriage. It's not true in our relationship with God. 
to help us understand this, the Bible actually uses marriage language in many different places to describe our relationship with God and His desire for us to exclusively love Him. The Old Testament book of Hosea is an incredible example of this. Uh, marriage language is used throughout that prophetic work. And in fact, Hosea's own marriage to a prostitute is a living parable of God's love for his people, his faithful love for his people, and their wandering hearts. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 13, God described Israel's idolatry this way. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. So just as a husband cannot love two wives, a wife cannot love two husbands, John says that those who love the world do not possess the love of the Father. Love of the world and love of the Father are mutually exclusive. So if we attach our hearts and minds to the pursuits of a world that rejects Christ, then it's evident that we do not love God. It is vitally important that as we work through this passage this morning, you remember John is speaking to the church, not the liberal left, not the fundamentalist right. He's speaking to the church and giving this warning to us. James chapter 4, verse 4 echoes these same sentiments. James wrote, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 24, we cannot serve two masters. And why would we? Do not forget the poem we read last week. Christ died and forgave us of our love of the world. We know God in all of his eternal beauty. By faith in Christ, we've conquered the evil one. So why would we love the evil that Christ defeated? So rather than loving the world, does that mean we are to hate the world? Is that what John's calling us to do? Take a posture of hate towards the things that are not of God? Not exactly. Now, certainly we are to hate the sin that ensnares us. We are in warfare against that sin. But the Bible clearly teaches that people are not our enemies. Never. John isn't telling us to hate the world. He's telling us to be certain that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what exclusive love for God looks like. That's what a healthy love for God looks like. So a healthy love for God is an exclusive love, unrivaled. Second characteristic of a healthy love for God, our love for God is a satisfying love. I'll know my love for God is right when I'm satisfied in Him. So in verse 16, John explains why we must not love the world. His reasoning is that the things that we are tempted to love in the world are not from God and Therefore, they can never satisfy us. Verse 16, for everything in the world. And and then he sums up what everything in the world is. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So here he's given us these three categories of sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride in our possessions. What are these three categories that he's speaking about? Well, first of all, Let's talk about the lust of the flesh, the desire of the flesh. In this case, the lust of the flesh is a description of our desire to fill natural desires in a way that's contrary to God's will. We're trying to feed natural appetites by sinful means. Uh, So for certain, sexual sin would be included in this category, but that's not the entirety of this category. Alcohol and drug addiction. 
gluttony, craving for flattery. There's any number of ways that we might be attempting to fill natural desires by sinful means. And when we do that, guess what we never find? We never find satisfaction. We can never feed those desires enough to be sated, to be full, to be satisfied. We're always left starving for more. The second category of sin that John spoke about is the lust of the eyes. Now, the lust of the eyes describes our warped desire to possess what we see. It's wanting what we don't have, not being content with what we do have. And what do we lust after with our eyes? Cars and homes and clothing and purses and power tools. Such stupid, stupid, stupid things. A.W. Tozer described our twisted desire for things this way. Listen to what he wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God. He said, the roots of our hearts have grown down into things And we dare not pull up one little rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. We love things. John's third category of sin is pride in our possessions. Your Bible might say the pride of life. You might have that translation. The focus in this phrase is on the issue of pride. John's describing boasting or arrogance. It's self-exaltation. It's the idolatry of reputation, career, achievement, social standing. James 4.16 echoes this warning. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And that kind of sick pride never satisfies. Your ego is never satisfied. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these have been called by theologians the trinity of evil. And they are seen throughout the Bible in various ways. Let's take a quick little trip all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. There the Bible says this, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, and delighted to look at it, lust of the eyes, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. There is the pride of life. All three of these present at the fall in the Garden of Eden. Also in the Old Testament, we repeatedly find three false gods who dominated the landscape of the ancient world. And Israel was always in a tug of war between the worship of God and the worship of these false gods. One of those false gods was named Ashtoreth. She was a female fertility god who promised to satisfy the lust of your flesh. You worshipped her in appropriate, grotesque ways. The false god Baal was a regional god of harvest. You worshipped Baal to satisfy the lust of your eyes, the desire to have, possess, to gain. Molech was a god who promised esteem, prestige, and social honor. Altars to Molech contained large fires into which you would sacrifice your child. To use the Bible's language, your child would pass through the fires to Molech, But you would walk away with the pride of life. Even Jesus was tempted by these same three types of sin, but he refused to give in. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 explains that the devil tempted Jesus 
Tell this stone to become bread. There's the lust of the flesh. And then the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, tempting Jesus with the lust of the eyes. And finally, from the pinnacle of the temple, the devil challenged Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will give His angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But even the pride of life could not entice the Savior to sin. So it's flesh. Eyes, pride, these are the categories John uses to say this is all that is in the world. That's not an exclusive list. They're just the summary of all that is in the world, these things that are against God that never satisfy. They never satisfy. Do you know what does satisfy? God asked this question of his people in Isaiah 55 too. He said, why do you spend money for what is not bread? In your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Only God can delight our souls in abundance. Only God. And He wants to. You don't have to convince Him. You don't have to beg or plead with Him. You don't have to achieve some grand thing before God begins to delight your soul in abundance. When you say yes to Him, He pours out the treasures of heaven to delight your soul in abundance. Our love for God is a love that satisfies forever. So our love for God is an exclusive love. Our love for God is a soul-satisfying love. The final characteristic of a healthy love for God, our love for God, is an eternal love. So John gives us one more reason for loving God supremely. He says, the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. The world is dying. It has a shelf life. It is in advanced decay. Not only can the things of this world not satisfy, but they fade away like memories and hairlines. They go. They're not forever. In chapter 2, verse 8, John said this. In verse 8, he said, the darkness is passing away. Here in verse 17, he says, the world is passing away. So light and that which lasts forever is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so what is it that remains? What lasts? What endures? Well, the answer in verse 17 is it's the one who does the will of God. That's the one who remains forever. That's a curious way to close this little section. I mean, John has told us not to love the world, so you might expect him to close the section by saying, instead, love God. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say love God. He says, do the will of God. Of God. And there's a valid and strong argument that loving God and doing the will of God are one and the same. In fact, this is language that Jesus used in John 14, 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commands. So doing the will of God and loving God go hand in hand. In Mark 3 35, Jesus said, Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So what then does John mean by do the will of God? We've already talked about this in our study of 1 John. And so I'm going to tell you something you already know. It's probably going to be really boring, but don't fall asleep. Don't check out on me just yet because you already know this. But doing the will of God is defined in 1 John by chapter 3, verse 23. You've got to keep that verse in front of you as you study 1 John. It's an important interpretive tool. 
And what does chapter 3, verse 23 tell us about the will of God? He says, now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. Faith in Jesus Christ, loving one another, this is the command of God. This is the will of God. Is it the entirety of his commands? Is that all that it means to do his will? No, that's not everything. But it's a lot in just one line. It's a lot of it. To trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and to love your neighbor as yourself. So it begs the question of us as we're reading through this and thinking about these things, Am I doing the will of God? The first question you would ask yourself is, do I believe in Jesus Christ? I don't mean simply as a historical figure or as an important teacher. I mean, have you trusted Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm so glad you're here this morning to hear what John wrote in chapter 2. But I want to talk to you directly for just a moment do you know what's so amazing about the love story between Jesus and you? There, there is. There's a love story between Jesus and you. What's amazing about it is that this is not the story of two great loves that find each other, but rather it's about Christ's great love for you and your complete rejection of him. But because of his great love, because of his faithfulness, he has pursued you and he's come for you. Because he loves you. And so how does he pursue you? Well, he's done this. Your sin separates you from God. That's true for every single person on planet Earth. We're not sinners just because of what we do. We're sinners because we are sinners. It's DNA deep in us. And so Jesus knows that. That God the Father loves you. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who is God who takes on flesh. And Jesus is the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin. No one else could do what Jesus has done for you. No one. No one else can make you right with God. You don't have it in yourself to earn the favor and the delight of God. You cannot earn it because your sin against him and his holiness is so great. But again, he loves you. So Jesus died for your sin. He took your death on the cross. He absorbs all of God's wrath for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and he promises that whoever calls on his name will be saved, whoever trusts in him. So he invites you to turn from the world, turn from your sin, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Turn from all of that and to turn to him. Let him be your one and only love, and he forgives you and gives you eternal life. That's where doing the will of God starts. And if you want to know more about that, or maybe you feel the call of God on your heart this morning, you say, I can't wait any longer, then this is your day of salvation. And I'd love to talk to you about that after this service is over. Or you might be here with a friend who walks with Jesus, you know and trust them. Talk to them, but do not put off eternal matters for another day. Forgiveness, love, new life is yours, and it's yours when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. So doing the will of God starts with trusting in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't stop there. It also involves loving people. How's that going for you? What does your checking account reveal about how you're loving people? 
What's your calendar reveal about your love for people? What do your words, both spoken and typed, reveal about your love for people? Jesus sets the tone for us here. He once prayed this, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then he did the will of the Father. What did he do? He went to the cross. So if you want to love people, maybe we should begin to share in Christ's prayer that we would do the will of God, that we would take up our cross and follow him. We've got to be those kinds of people. So John this morning has helped us understand better what a healthy love for God looks like. It's an exclusive love. It's a satisfying love. It's an eternal love. I told you a little bit ago about uh, these three false gods worshipped by ancient Israel and their idolatry. Do you want to know what the scariest part was about their idolatry? While they were worshipping their false gods, they never stopped being Jewish. They still played the part of God's people while they gave their hearts to the world. The prophet Isaiah said they were a people who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And this is why you and I have to listen so intently to John's warning. What he's describing here is not renouncing Christianity and going in a totally different way. He is describing people who play the part of a Christian while they give their hearts to the world, a people whose faith is all lips and no heart. And so when we read these words, we have to evaluate our own hearts. We have to ask questions of ourselves to see, where does my love lie? Satan is a deceiver. Your first answer is, I'm okay. But when we sit and we evaluate, we might find, by the help of the Holy Spirit, that there are places where our love is not right. Our heart is dysfunctional. So here's some questions you might ask yourself. Is there an appetite that you are feeding in sinful ways? Are you coveting what others have, always discontented by what you don't have? Or do you put value in people based on what they own or have earned? Are you uh, prideful? Are you arrogant, consumed with your image? Do you think of yourself as better than others? because of your high status or because of what you perceive to be their low status? Are you not doing the will of God? Now, the, the honest answer to these questions can possibly result in so much shame and guilt. What are we to do when we realize our hearts are dysfunctional, our love has moved from God to the world? What do we do? Well, John has already told us what to do. Remember chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Remember chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you realize the seriousness of your sin, you don't need to be afraid. God is a faithful forgiver. But if our love has been given to the world, then we need more than just a quiet promise to do better. We need a repentance of love, a repentance that is heart deep. Listen to what God said to his idolatrous people through the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, God said, Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. 
Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. So if you've diagnosed yourself this morning with a dysfunctional heart, well, it's time for a new heart. It's time for a repentance of love. What if you don't? What if you continue to play the part of Christian while giving your heart to the world? If you continue that, your sin will continue to push you away from God as you look for more and more ways to find satisfaction in a dying world. Also, sin always has a human cost. Your sinful choices will hurt the people around you, people you love. What's more, your sinful choices will continue to hurt yourself. It is a beastly way to live. But you can stop all of that damage, prevent it, or begin to heal it by turning back to God with all your heart. He's faithful to His promises. He's faithful to you. He loves you, and He will forgive you, and He will strengthen you to do His will. God is more generous with grace than you can believe. He always has been. And when God's people were in exile because of their long history of idolatry and sin against God, He gave them a promise that one day He would bring them back home. And that promise in particular is found in Ezekiel chapter 11. And it reads like this, When they arrive home, they will remove all its abhorrent acts and detestable practices from it. I will give them integrity of heart. And put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. So that they will follow my statutes. Keep my ordinances and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. He has kept that promise. You benefit from it. You are his people. He is your God. So let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul all our mind, all our strength. Let's pray together.